Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, and we are looking at verses 7 through 15. Exodus 19, 7 through 15, you can grab your own copy of, uh, the, your, of a, your Bible, and or if you don't have one, you can grab the pew Bibles that are kind of in front of you, those black pew Bibles, and let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 19, verses 7 through 15, listen to what God's Word says to us. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that people may hear when I speak with you, and and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. When you get ready to meet somebody, uh, there's usually a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And it depends totally on the person that you're meeting. Uh, If you're meeting a friend you've known since childhood, you can probably roll out of bed in your PJs and not even brush your teeth and meet with them. But if you're going to meet a king, showing up in your slippers, no matter how fancy they might be, would be a little ridiculous. Uh, Since the recent death of Queen Elizabeth, a lot of her stories have kind of resurfaced and kind of made the news. And one of them include how a man in, that really insisted on meeting the queen managed to slip past her security de- detail and shimmied her, his, way, his way up a drain pipe and trespassed into her private quarters where she was asleep. And uh, the startled queen maintained her composure, chatted with him, but only long enough for her security detail to come and haul him away. Now, that's not the way to get an audience with a monarch. No, if you're to meet the queen, or I guess these days if you're going to meet King Charles, uh, you must first receive an invitation. When you meet the king, you greet him as your majesty, or, and afterwards, you greet him and you start calling him sir. 
Men are to bow, women are to curtsy, unless you're not British. And in that case, you just nod if you're a man and do a little um, bob as a woman. You never touch the king. Even if you're going to take a picture with him, never offer your hand for a handshake. You do not touch. You don't speak unless spoken to. You dress conservatively. And I think you should never, ever, ever call him Charlie. Now, most of us understand that when you get ready to meet with someone, there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And it depends totally on the person that you're meeting with. And that is what we see in our passage in Exodus 19. Israel prepares to meet with God, and the problem they have is that they're preparing to meet with God, right? What will it mean to meet with him? Who is he? What is he like? This is a question for all of us to think carefully about as well. Are you ready to meet God? Do you know who he is that you might approach him appropriately? So if you haven't already, turn with me to Exodus 19 as we look through to verses 7 through 15. And if you're new here to Redeemer, it's probably helpful for you to know that on a Sunday On a typical Sunday morning, we are in the habit of preaching verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through books of the Bible. We believe this not only provides continuity for us as a church, but allows God to set the agenda every Sunday, meaning I can't just skip a verse because I don't like it, or I can't just, you know, make sure I, you know, get to those verses that are really my hobby horses. Right now on Sundays, Pastor Daniel has been leading us through the Gospel of Mark while I've been preaching through Exodus. And you can always find our preaching and teaching schedule online, and uh, those are subject to change, so you'll notice that probably today is not perfectly lined up. Now, so far in Exodus, has been a story of redemption. God has saved and redeemed Israel out of slavery and brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. But beginning in chapter 19, the narrative shifts. It won't be so much a story of redemption as it will be a story of revelation because God is about to give his people his law. This will be the expression of their relationship with God. And these verses right now provide two critical reminders as God prepares to meet his people. These verses provide two truths that we must know when approaching God. First, first, we must prepare to meet an intimate God. We must prepare to meet an intimate God. That's the first lesson. The theological term for this is called the imminence of God. That's spelled I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. So imminence of God. Simply put, it means that God is near It speaks to his close personal involvement and interaction with his creation. When we speak of God as imminent, it means we can approach him with confidence. It means that we can experience his personal presence, that intimacy. You see that a little bit in Exodus 19, don't you? Exodus 19 earlier began with the assurance in verses 4 through 6 of God's great love for his people. You see, earlier in verse 4, God reminded them how he had carried them on on eagle's wings like a mother with her young. 
He says he brought Israel to himself. He assures them that they have a special place in his heart as his treasured possession. These are ex- really astonishing expressions of warmth and tenderness. Sometimes we're not kind of astonished by such words from the Bible. Uh, we're kind of like, of course God would want to meet with me. I mean, wouldn't he want to get with this? You know, like that kind of attitude. But such thinking would have been unheard of for anybody in the ancient Near East. It's why Moses cries out in Deuteronomy 4.7. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us? And notice in our passage all the ways in which God condescends to draw near, stoops down to draw near lowers himself below his level of importance to be near his people. Look, notice first that he speaks to Moses. He speaks to his people through Moses, the mediator. Christians are very familiar with this. We have a Bible, and we refer to it as God's Word. We are a Word-based people, Word-created people, And we scarcely stop to think about what a miracle of condescension it is that God says, I will speak to them. Why should he have anything to say to us? He could just sit removed from us. He could just have created us, be a divine watchmaker and said, hey, here you go. I'm not going to interact with you. Heaven is his throne. The earth is footstool. He could simply sit in heaven, punish us when he feels that it's necessary to punish us. But he speaks. This is why at the beginning of service, we have a thing called a call to worship. This call to worship is not Michael coming up here calling us to worship. No. It is God calling us to worship, if for those of you who are here for that. You know, some of you might have heard of that poem about the blind men and the elephant. Uh, It's this poem that goes how several blind men approach this elephant. One touches the trunk of the elephant and says, it's a snake. And then another touches the ear and says, it's a fan. And another touches the leg and says, it's a tree trunk. Now the poem is saying, no one really knows what God is like. We're all just blind people groping around, trying to figure out what God is like. Every run is right about what they believe what God is like. But that is not the God of the Bible. Because the elephant speaks. We are blind, but the elephant speaks. He says, I'm an elephant. Um, I'm feeling around, and I think you're a paradox. He says, no, I'm an elephant. Uh, you're kind of a mystery. No, I'm an elephant. He speaks, doesn't he? We have a God who speaks, not unintelligibly, through some angelic language. He speaks to us by his word. The very God of the universe speaks on every page of the Bible into our minds. We don't have to cut ourselves like the priests of Baal, cutting themselves with knives, hoping to hear a divine word. We don't have to plead, God, God, why won't you speak to me? No, God has spoken. He condescends to communicate to us. He speaks to us every time we open up the scriptures. But we must be ready to listen. But notice in our passage, God in his eminence, in his 
imminence, not only speaks, but God is present. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And then verse 11, On the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now God is invisible. And next week we'll see that there is what's called a theophany, an appearance of the Lord, so to speak, with, his, with, his, uh, with the thunder and the clouds and, and the trumpet blasts. But notice the language from our passage this morning. God must come down to this place. Whenever God visits his people, it is a come down. Nehemiah would later say in, in Nehemiah 9.13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. Meeting God is only made possible because God comes down. We cannot climb up to meet with God. Some of us might be familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. There, people came together to build this tower, this symbol of their strength and, and wisdom and their pride. And they say, I'm going to reach up to heaven. They want to make much of themselves And it says in that passage, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. In other words, the tower that these people thought were so magnificent, God couldn't even see it from heaven. He had to come down just to take a look at what these little bitty humans were doing. We cannot climb up to God. He must come down to us, and he does. All of the Bible, all that God speaks from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam to Christ's return, is about God drawing near to his people. It's about God coming near. That happens in the garden and will happen again at the end in Revelation when God says, I will dwell with them and they will be my people. Now can you imagine if you heard a knock on the door, and you open it up, and somebody's fam- somebody famous is at your door, like the president, or Steph and Aisha Curry, you know, and they say, hey, we need a place to crash. Could we stay over? How would you respond? I'd probably say, you better give my children some basketball lessons and some cooking lessons at the same time. But we understand we would all be floored. We'd, you'd wonder why this person who, would, who could possibly buy up all the houses on your block say, I want to move in with you. In fact, most of us would probably say, what's the catch? Why are you here? Am I getting pranked? What's going on? If someone powerful draws close to you, isn't it because they really want something? Politicians come to you, they shake your hand, and they're happy for you to take that selfie with them. Why? They need to get on social media. They need a picture of you, them with the common, common, commoners, right? They want your vote. But God needs none of that. He's not running for office. He owns everything. He's perfectly self-sufficient and needs nothing, yet he draws near. And, and with intimacy of speaking and presence, God is not some impersonal force that surrounds us and binds us and flows through us. No, God is the king of the universe who created everything and everyone and needs nothing. It condescends. God is the one who is gentle 
and lowly that we might be in a relationship with him. Approaching God means meeting an intimate God. And here's the second lesson in approaching God. Prepare not only to meet an intimate God, but an infinite God. Whereas previously we were kind of, in that first point, we're kind of talking about the imminence of God. Here we are referring to the transcendence of God. It speaks to his distance from his creatures. It speaks to his holiness and greatness. It speaks to God's otherness, his absolute distinction from us. Because of who God is, we cannot be casual in coming before him. Now, this has nothing to do with what you wear. I'm not talking about casual in terms of, is it casual or is it business casual or is it black tie event? No, rather it means we cannot come before God cavalier or careless, flippant or frivolous. Coming before God, approaching God is serious business. God gives Israel three days to get ready. It takes time to get ready to prepare your hearts, because standing before God means standing on hallowed ground. The seriousness of being in God's presence is indicated here in two ways in our passage. First, notice that God sets limits for his people. They they don't deal with God directly. Rather, they need a mediator. They need Moses. They need Moses to go up and down the mountain, back and forth, communicating You know, uh, Moses reports all these things to the people. And I was reading that earlier this week. I said, he's reporting these things to God. And I'm thinking, doesn't God hear it? Of course he hears it. But this is an indication that there is distance between the people and God. What's more, verse 12, God says, you shall set limits for the people all around. Take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. In other words, don't touch the mountain. When God descends on the mountain, it will be made holy by his presence. And so Moses and the elders, they're to mark out a boundary. They're to unfurl the police tape. They're to nail down signs all over the mountain saying, Keep out, no trespassing. Authorized access only. And the Israelites, they're not to approach the mountain until someone sounds the all-clear trumpet. And the penalty is severe. Violators of this, what happens to them? Executed. The Israelites have an order to shoot on sight. Not with a gun, obviously, but with a bow and arrow. This is not the only time we hear of this in the Bible. When the ark wobbles in 1 Corinthians 13, Uzzah puts out his hand to steady it, and he is struck down dead. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 offer strange fire to the Lord, and they are struck down dead. Why? Because they underestimated the holiness of God. Uzzah thought somehow that his hand was more holy than the ground that the ark was in danger of touching. Nadab and Abihu thought they could do whatever they wanted around God. They underestimated the holiness of God. And without fail, every single one of us in this room underestimate the holiness of God. 
all of us underestimate it. Many of you have uh, spent time in this church a long time. Some of you have grown up in the church. You've, maybe you're in Awana or you're, you attend the youth group or you serve in a position of even spiritual influence. Others of you are newer to Christianity, perhaps only for a few years, perhaps a couple months, but all of us are in danger of losing our awe of God, of being carelessly familiar with God. It's easy to come on a Sunday, to sing along with the music, to go through the order of service, to pray the prayers, to to hear God's word opened up. It's easy to come back on a Sunday evening fellowship, and pretty soon it might be, at first, it might be really invigorating to give yourself to the Lord's Day, and then pretty soon it just becomes this familiarity that does not breed contempt, but it breeds a coolness, a casualness around God, a carelessness. Slowly, even unintentionally, we shrink God down to size, And coming into God's presence, maybe even particularly on a Sunday morning, we imagine ourselves coming into a living room rather than a throne room. Maybe the assumption is that God should be content, thankful even that we set aside our precious time on Sunday to give him our attention. And so some of us barely get here on time, and then some of us wake up and we're thinking, well... You know, I can't even bother to get out of bed. I'd rather just find something online. There are some things that are to be set apart from ordinary life. Hallowed. You don't do a TikTok challenge at the Holocaust Memorial. You don't play Pokemon Go at the 9-11 Memorial. And you don't come to God indifferently or flippantly. Annie Dillard, who is a prize, Pulitzer Prize winning author, she writes this. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us, lash us to our pews. It is no small thing to come before God. We forget that when we come before God, when we come into his presence, we are standing on holy ground. So children, I want you to listen up right now. All the children, right now, listen up right now. I know Sunday service can seem especially long and boring. You dread the times when Pastor Stephen has to walk up these steps into the pulpit. You're in for a long Sunday, aren't you? You much rather wish that there would be some videos, maybe some fog lights and lasers, And I know Sunday mornings are hard. It's hard for five-year-olds, and it's hard for 15-year-olds, and guess what? It's hard for the 50-year-olds as well. So as much as you can, knowing that it's hard to sit through a service, do your best to think, I am coming before an almighty God. That's what you're doing. 
You know, you're often taught to pray with your hands together, and you close your eyes, right, like this. The Bible doesn't say you need to actually do that. Put your hands together and close your eyes. Now, children, why do we ask you to do that? It's so that you don't hit your brother or sister, right? It's so you don't get distracted. It's a posture that says what we are doing right now is serious and it's important. We don't come any which way to God because He is holy. We come with reverence and honor and it's a privilege to speak to Him in prayer. Second, the seriousness of being in God's presence is indicated not only by the limits placed on the people, but also by the instructions concerning the laundry room and the bedroom of the Israelites. In verse 10 and 14, Moses is said to consecrate the people. That word consecrate has the idea of setting apart, making holy. Now, they're about to meet God, enter into a covenant with Him, so a big deal. So they're to wash their garments. They need to put on their Sabbath best. This is a sign of their sanctification. In the Bible, clothing often serves as an outward symbol of someone's true spiritual condition. Here's this outward act indicating Israel's inward devotion, acknowledging their inward need to be clean and pure and holy before they come in the presence of the Lord. Again, let me be clear that this passage is not saying that all of you need to take a bath and that all of you need to wash your clothes before doing your devotionals or coming here on a Sunday morning. It might do some of you good, but that's not what the main idea here is. God is much more, is after much more than the way we dress. It's about purity of heart and mind that they might see the Lord. Wear whatever you want, whatever reflects humility, joy, and reverence within your cultural context. It's not so much about attire as attitude as you come before God. The same thing could be said about verse 15 when Moses commands the people, do not go near a woman. Now here the Bible is talking about abstinence from sex. And it's not because sex is bad or defiling, but it's about focus and self-denial, and it's about holiness of heart. Now, Paul said the same thing when he counseled married people in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, don't deprive one another. But you might do that, perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. In any true and happy marriage, sex involves a total absorption of each other. It's emotionally delightful, can be physically pleasurable. And so there is a restriction for Israel because the Lord desires to have his people's hearts completely to himself at this moment. At this crucial juncture with his people, he wants their undivided attention. Every fiber of every Israelite's mind, body, and heart are to strain to hear to hear and listen as God's presence comes before them. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope you realize by now that you cannot approach God just as you are. You'll never make it. 
God is holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin. His justice demands that sin be punished. There is no one, and if you came just as you are, you would be separated from God because there is no amount of good works that you can do to tip the scales. We can never clean ourselves up well enough to draw near to God. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We can't consecrate ourselves. But, but, in the fullest expression of transcendence and imminence, what happens? He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, to be in human form. He condescended. He stooped. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what did Jesus die for? For all those who would trust in him, Jesus becomes the perfect mediator between God and man. No more need of Moses. It's Jesus, the perfect mediator. He consecrates. He is the one. Jesus is the one that will consecrate you and set you apart and make you holy. He is the one who washes you pure by taking on your sins. He is the one that robes you in robes of righteousness because he gives it to you. Jesus died and rose again that you might draw near if you but turn from your sins and trust in him. He is speaking to you. He desires to draw near, but are you listening? And will you respond? Church, our God is both infinite and intimate, transcendent and imminent. He's infinite in all aspects of his being, and he never changes. Only God has no beginning and no end. God needs nothing, depends on nothing, owes nothing. As we sung earlier, he is holy, holy, holy. The eye of sinful man cannot see him. God is God, and we are not, except that God is also intimate, merciful, and mighty, as we sung. He sustains us. He is involved with and is present with his creation. He is personally invested in this world. And despite how small and sinful we are, he stoops. He condescends. He comes near. He draws near in love and compassion. And sometimes we're the types of people that like one or the other. Oh, I want the big God. The big and infinite God. And some of us are just pleading. We just want that intimate God. The one that will draw near. But God is not made up of parts. He is both those things simultaneously to you. He says, come up the mountain, and he says, unless you come carefully, you're dead. That's the kind of God he is. God dwells in eternity, yet feels at home among the lowly. God is seated on high, but lifts up the needy. Coming into God's presence is something else, isn't it? It's electrifying because he's holy and happy. He's fearful and fascinating, majestic and meek, dangerous and delightful, the lion and the lamb. Church, let us worship our God appropriately. Let us worship our God who is uncompromising in justice and tempered with mercy, worthy of all good, but patient to suffer all evil. Let us sing to him. 
Let us sing to him because of his sovereign dominion over the world, but also because he was clothed in a spirit of obedience and humility. Oh, he is our transcendent and imminent God. There is none like him. Let's go before him now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word because it speaks to us. And you draw near to your people. You draw near even now for those who are feeling apathetic, for those who are feeling distant from you. You draw near through your son, Jesus Christ. You've indwelt your people with a spirit. You are not stiff-arming your people away, but you come in all your majesty and might that we might fear your name and draw ever closer to you, our refuge. Father, we also pray this morning for those who are here visiting for the first time, Christian, non-Christians who are exploring Christianity. Give them a right understanding of you through your word that they may turn and trust in you, that they may be consecrated and brought near. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.